Hello there, this is Future Forecast and I'm your host, Daniel Trainer. Today we're going to talk about some of the new technology happening right now in consumer electronics, transportation, energy and possible future innovations. Broadcasting every weekday on KUIK 1360 AM as well as weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM. If you want to listen to episodes in your own time, be sure to check out the playback on SoundCloud by searching Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer. But without further ado, let's buckle up and find out what's this week's Future Forecast. So, as we know, the coronavirus outbreak has caused some widespread alarm. There's been travel bans and quarantines around multiple cities across the world, but there's also been a very unexpected effect on the environment. And this comes in the form of a massive drop in nitrogen dioxide emission levels across China. But how do you actually figure this out? How do we know that the levels have dropped? Well, it comes from data collected from the tropospheric monitoring instrument on the European Space Agency's Sentinel-5 satellite. And that showed the big drop of the nitrogen dioxide, which as we know is a gas that's produced by cars, trucks, power plants, and obviously, industrial plants, which obviously China's full of, and this was all between January 1st and February 25th. Now, Fei Lu, who's an air quality researcher at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, said that, quote, this is the first time I've ever seen such a dramatic drop-off over such a wide area for a specific event. Now, a sensor on NASA's Aurora satellite, which monitors the ozone layer, it basically was also making some measurements on a drop in pollutants. Now, Barry Leffer, who's an air quality scientist at NASA, said that, quote, there's always this general slowdown around this time of year. Our long-term OMI, which is short for ozone monitoring instrument, is that the data showing us that these amounts are starting to be abnormally low. And this all makes sense because there's a restriction on transport, there's a restriction really on movement of people in China with this whole coronavirus. Now, an early analysis published by the Carbon Brief in February showed that coal use at power stations is at a four-year low and domestic flights they are down about 70%. Along with the drop in steel manufacturing and oil refining output, they estimate that this might have lowered the country's carbon dioxide emissions by approximately a quarter over just the last few weeks. However, just because industries have lowered their carbon dioxide output and nitrogen dioxide levels are a little bit lower above China, it doesn't mean that the air is cleaner in the cities. In mid-February, Beijing's air pollution levels were still 10 times the recommended level by the World Health Organization. Now, somebody called Ma Zhung, who's the director of the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs, said, Even without car emissions, these industrial and coal-fired emissions are enough to plunge Beijing into consecutive days of severe pollution amid unfavorable weather. 
The priority is now to continue strengthening the regulation on industry and the burning of coal. Now, it's important to note that this isn't the first time we've seen a dramatic drop in China's air pollution levels. Back in 2008, during the Beijing Olympic Games, there was a huge drop-off in nitrogen dioxide above the city. But just like before, pollution started to rise soon after the Olympic Games ended. So with the whole coronavirus, we've had robots being put in hospitals and we've seen a big change with a lot of different things when it comes to production. But what does this mean though? Well, it really means that we might start seeing more use of recycled materials from products in China. And why does that matter? Well, all of our stuff usually comes from China, so that really means we're going to be having a lot lower of an impact on the environment. And kind of going along the same track there with the environment in mind, how about renewable energy? Now we think automatically solar and wind, and you've got hydro, which is something that can be done right, and it can be something that's done wrong, and it can cause drastic environmental impact. So really, we're looking at solar and wind. And just recently, there's been a pretty big breakthrough in a new solar cell technology. Now, for the past six years, there's been a major US oil and gas holding company, and they've been collaborating with the National Renewable Energy Lab on a new breakthrough perovskite solar cell. Now, the effort has been conducted through a relatively new division that hasn't attracted much attention until now. So this holding company is really Hunt Consolidated Incorporated. Mainly, they're focused on market-proven technology and they don't like to disrupt their fossil fuel business, so at least not for the time being. Now, Hunt's new perovskite research could have kind of had a pretty profound widespread impact on energy in the marketplace, and it could accelerate the transition from fossil fuels to renewables. And that's because the perovskite technology can push down solar costs far below today's costs. Perovskite solar cells are also lighter and more flexible, so that means that you could have a greater range of applications. You could put them on a curved surface, it doesn't really matter. For a bonus, perovskite solar cells can be printed with relatively conventional high-volume manufacturing processes. So this is something that could be used in a variety of different applications. I mean, we're just looking at this as a new technology, but look a little bit down the road. What if you could have a mobile 3D printer, and let's say your car, you've got an electric car, and you want to maybe have solar added to it. You could just set this machine on the hood, let it print out your solar panel, and then, hey, now you've got maybe a solar panel you could hook up to your 12-volt battery. Always keep it topped up. But, of course, there's a couple of challenges, especially when it comes to perovskite as a solar cell material. And that comes down to durability. Now, the researchers, they've been trying various formulas to try and improve the durability without sacrificing too much of the solar conversion efficiency. But according to Hunt, the new solar cell exceeds IEC standards for temperature, humidity, white light, and ultraviolet stress while achieving a solar conversion efficiency of 18%, which for solar is really, really impressive. Now, talking about something else that's going to get a big improvement, cable TV. Now, we know cable TV has kind of slowly been going away. People are kind of fed up paying extremely high fees for a service that they can easily just get on the internet. You know, you go on YouTube, Netflix, that's pretty much your go-to. But with things like a growing Starlink mega constellation internet service, we're going to start seeing companies that, you know, normally provided this cable TV moving over. 
Now, that's already happening. Now, just recently, AT&T has launched their new internet-delivered TV service, and it's probably been because of the struggles with the shrinking direct TV satellite business. Now, why is this so important? Well, AT&T, they're obviously a big company, but this is starting to show where media is gonna start going. And what do I mean by that? Well, obviously, we're talking about an online and internet-connected service. And most of these little boxes, these little Android boxes, they, some of them have VR and AR capability. And what does that mean? Well, sometimes you can play games in VR or whatever. So now what you're going to maybe start seeing, and we already know this for the movie industry, you're gonna to start to see a mesh of augmented reality, VR, gaming, and cinema put together. Now that'd be really cool, especially when it comes to sport. Imagine watching like a football game or something, or you know, like an ice hockey game, and you could be right there in the rink or the field, watching the players kind of go by. Uh, it could really add a massive dynamic, and I think a lot of people would love it. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. Talking a little bit about transportation, there was something quite unexpected that happened. Now, there's the all-new Fiat 500e, and we kind of heard that it was going to debut at this week's Geneva Motor Show, but that show had been cancelled due to the coronavirus, and in all the chaos and all the confusion, leaked images of the new Fiat 500e emerged on the web. And the shots reveal quite a lot. I mean, it shows you pretty much the whole interior, the exterior, and kind of how they redesigned it for the 2021 year. Now, the Fiat 500, the last one, the E, left the US dealerships around 2019, and it's looking like it's probably gonna come back to the US in 2021. This is gonna be built in Europe. Fiat's gonna apparently make about 80,000 units per year, and that's gonna start in the second quarter of this year, 2020. Now, the Fiat CEO, he kinda admitted that the CO2 regulations partly motivated the new 500E, which is similar to the first 500E, which was California regulation. Now, he told Autocar that the new Fiat 500E would sell for around 35,500. Now, that's, that's quite a big price for a small EV. And as we know from the media reports, they're trying to speculate that the driving range is about 125 miles. Some say it's 150 to 200, which I'd agree with a lot more. And the reason I say that is because Fiat, they spent 800 million on this new platform. So for them to only gain 35 miles, like range extra over the previous 500E, and nobody would buy that. And by the way, the previous 500E was the same technology from 2013 all the way up to 2019. 
Now, the previous spy shots, they went on the web, they showed the 500E with the reworked dashboard, but now we can really see it. So it's got a very large infotainment screen, which the car is already very narrow. It's only five and a half feet wide, the whole car. So the inside, the screen's massive. And that's a pretty big improvement because I used to own a Fiat 500e and the screen that you got was very small. It was like this little TomTom GPS. So having like a dedicated, nice touch screen where you can get Apple CarPlay, Android Auto and properly see your car's range, but like Tesla, that's gonna be a nice welcomed feature. One thing that's not such a great feature with the new car is the shifter. Now, the original 500E, it just literally took where your gear shifter knob was and replaced it with four buttons. You know, you had drive, neutral, reverse, and park, right? Very simple. This new one looks like they've done away with that and they've gone with this line of buttons. And obviously it looks a little less like a transmission, makes the interior look cleaner. I think that's going to be much less functional than it would be if you just had it in the center. So the outside though looks much more sporty, it looks a lot less cute. And something very interesting is that they've removed the Fiat badge on the exterior of the car at the front and they've replaced it with just 500. And it's very similar, it kind of reminds me what Jeep uh, did with the Wrangler. They just removed the Jeep badge and that's kind of how they did that design. Um, overall, it does have this whole removable roof. Uh, it looks like the whole thing can turn into a cabriolet. The fabric kind of like folds backwards, but I don't know about this design. It does look sporty in some areas, but overall it does kind of look more like a base 500. The 500E we had in the US, uh, which was 2013 to 2019, looked more like an Abarth. It had this really cool front splitter. It just looked better, in my opinion. This new one looks a bit too much like a cheap Fiat 500, but we'll have to wait and see. Hopefully Fiat releases some more info because the car obviously has now leaked. Now talking about another very, very small EV, and this has just got released, Citroen has released their new AMI EV. Now this is a $7,000 two-seater transportation module. They're not really calling it a car. But what does this thing look like and what are the specs? Well, it kind of looks like something out of a futurist dystopian movie. It's this two-seater pod looking thing and this is making production, this isn't a concept. It's got a 5.5 kilowatt hour lithium ion battery which is really small and that charges in three hours which is really slow and it's got a range of 42 miles, which is really bad, and a top speed of 28 miles an hour, which is not very good either. So you're kind of thinking, well, this is really limited performance. Well, that's actually a good thing for Europe because that means no driver's license is required to drive it. So people as young as 14 could drive it in France and as young as 16 in other European countries. It's got a panoramic roof, it's got an interior heater and the side windows, they kind of pop out just like they did back in the 1950s in the iconic Citroen 2CV. The pricing is obviously $7,000 and it could be purchased or for around 3,000 down, you could have a very low monthly payment of about $25 a month for four years. And you're kind of thinking, wow, this is really cheap. Well, the reason it's so cheap is to try and compete with transportation in a city. It's to try and get people off public transportation and into a car, which I'm all for, because this isn't just a subscription service. This is actually letting somebody who would normally go on a bus own a car. 
they actually own the entire vehicle. And with a kind of increasing subscription lifestyle for everybody in the city, I think this would be a big hit, especially in Europe. I don't think it'd be such a big hit over in America because it's too small, it's low powered, I don't think we'd be very interested in it. But talking about something that I think a lot of people would be very interested in over here, GM has announced that they're officially launching their new Menlo SUV EV. And let me walk you through the figures. It's got 250 miles of range, and that's confirmed, and its starting price is just $23,000. So you're effectively getting the same range nearly as a Tesla Model 3 for $23,000, no incentive. And let me kind of read you their sales pitch for this. So it goes, the Chevrolet Menlo incorporates GM class leading battery technology, a new generation, highly efficient, pure electric drive system that ensures a smooth, quiet, and natural driving experience. It generates 110 kilowatts of maximum power and 350 newton meters of maximum torque with electricity consumption of 13.1 kilowatt hours per 100 kilometers. It also has three driving modes and three energy recovery modes. The economical, normal, sporty driving modes support base acceleration, standard acceleration, and enhanced acceleration depending on a user's preferences. So anyway, you're looking at all this and you're thinking, why on earth don't they release this in North America? It just doesn't make any sense. This is almost as bad as the decision they made when they crushed the EV1 back in the early 2000s. And the reason I say that is because it's so annoying. If they did actually make this available here, it would almost certainly outsell the Model Y by quite a big margin, just because if the price, if they could actually get this over here for $23,000, taking incentives into kind of consideration, take another 7,000, 5,000 off that, you're sub 20,000. So the fingers are crossed, hopefully they can bring it over. And if they do, probably the timeline's gonna be late 2021 or early 2022. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show's broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. So let's start off our space news with a bang. And it comes from SpaceX with their new Starship prototype appearing to burst during a pressure test late Friday. And the rupture kind of was under the glare of floodlights and the mist, but you could kind of just make it out by seeing it topple over and then explode. So this is all kind of for the Starship SN1. And this is the midsection and it buckled during the test. As we know, the Starship SN1 is a test article for SpaceX's planned Starship and Super Heavy Mega Rocket. And if we take our minds back to December 27th, 2019, Elon wrote on Twitter that, quote, we're now building flight design of Starship SN1, but each SN will have at least minor improvements, at least through to SN20 or so for Starship V1.0. 
and we've got Starship 2.0 and 3.0, so there's going to be a lot of tests up to that point. This is just one of 20 rockets that's going to be tested to capacity. And this one, it exploded, and that means that they can learn a lot more now to help the rest of the 20 designs hold up better. Now, talking about launching and doing tests, Space Launch System, the SLS launch, has been pushed to 2021. You might think, oh, that kind of sucks, that looks like it's going to keep getting pushed, keep getting pushed, but they've actually built a quite a large portion of the rocket. So speaking at the Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium at the Applied Physics Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland, NASA Associate Administrator Steve Jersnick said that all of the elements needed for Artemis 3, which is 2024 Human Lunar Lander, are either under development or will soon be under contract. That includes Space Launch System rocket and the Orion spacecraft. The Space Launch System core stage for Artemis 1, the uncrewed test flight, is currently at the Stennis Space Center for a green run, which is a static test fire, and that's going to be scheduled for later this year, while the Orion spacecraft for that mission is kind of wrapping up testing at NASA's Plumbrook Station. Now, the SLS core stage, he said, should arrive at the Kennedy Space Center in late summer or early fall, allowing the teams to begin, quote, integrating for a launch hopefully in mid-21 timeframe to mid to late 21 timeframe for Artemis 1. Now, NASA has yet to provide a new formal launch date for that mission, but it's kind of slipped by several years. I mean, in December, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstein said that the launch would be taking place in 2021 after the agency had been holding on a November 2020 launch date. Now, Doug Lavero, who's the agency's new Associate Administrator for Human Exploration and Operations, commissioned a review of NASA's exploration plans when he started work in December, and that included setting a new date for Artemis 1, and that plan should be released in the next couple of weeks, so hopefully then we can go through it and then find out what's really going on. Now, here's something really cool. If you've ever wanted to be an astronaut, here's your chance. NASA has started taking applications for their next round of astronauts, and some of them are likely going to be part of the future Moon and Mars expeditions. You've got until the end of the month, so March 31st at 11.59pm Eastern Time to apply, and although the time isn't the main constraint here, really qualifying is. So NASA says that you need to be a US citizen with either a master's degree in a STEM field or an equivalent, such as two years of work towards the doctorate in your field, a medical doctorate, or a combination of the completed test pilot school program finished by June 2021 with a STEM bachelor's degree. You also need real-world experience, and that includes either two years of, quote, progressively responsible work experience, or a thousand flight hours as a pilot in command. So you can see, these are pretty strict. And if you do pass, and you're able to get through, that's obviously a big opportunity. Which would mean you could be part of a very small group that has ventured beyond Earth, even if you don't go further than the International Space Station. Now, talking about space stations, China Space Station. Well, they've been planning a launch in April, and that's to prepare for building the country's next space station. Now, a long March 
5B rocket will carry a quote trial version of China's new spacecraft which is designed to carry crews of up to six people into orbit, which is really incredible actually. And while the April mission is not going to carry any people or pieces of future space station, it is expected to prepare Chinese officials for space station construction. Now, the Long March 5B is a modified version of China's heavy-lift Long March 5 rocket, which has been flying since 2016. The China Manned Space Agency designed the 5B for space station and large cruise spacecraft. Now, China plans to finish the space station by 2022, which is very, very quick. The way they're going to do this is with more than 10 missions for construction and in-orbit assembly. Now, the station is going to be shaped like a T with a core module called a Tianhe at the center, uh, which is going to have one lab module on either side of that. The station will offer 5,650 cubic feet or about 160 cubic meters of living space across all three modules. And that's a little bit more than one third of the space on the International Space Station, which has currently 13,696 cubic feet. And that's like a small house, basically. And that's not including temporary expansions from visiting spaceships, a bit like the Crew Dragon. Now, unlike previous Chinese space stations, which required both water launch from Earth Water on the new space station is going to be recovered from water vapor and astronaut urine, so they're definitely trying to do a full circle system up there. The space station is also going to have machinery so they can produce supplemental oxygen. This Chinese space complex is also going to have room for science experiments in the fields ranging from astronomy to basic physics to life science, and you're going to be able to do quite a lot up there using more than a dozen experiment racks, as well as an optical telescope that is quote going to be in the same orbit and you know if you look back at China's first space station had this one room Tiangong 1 that was launched in 2011 it burned up in the Earth's atmosphere seven years later but it's kind of China's been building on this kind of station thing for a while then they had the Tiangong 2 which launched in 2016 and that supported longer duration missions so it looks like they've done their homework and this station probably is going to be pretty successful so with all these space stations and we've got the 2024 mission, there's still the strong possibility that NASA's moon mission and some of these other projects might get delayed from 2024 to 2025 or even later. Some people were saying 2028. And onto all of that, we will probably see congressional leadership force NASA to change its human exploration agenda all over again. But NASA's not the only one who's been planning a moon trip. Many other countries have private companies and everybody's been very eager to get in on the action. Things like water ice reserves could be harvested. You could make that into propellant, make travel through deep space vastly less expensive. Then you've got helium-3, which is extremely rare on Earth, but elsewhere, you know, it could help power future spacecraft. And then you've got rare and precious metals, which could help us run new technologies that might not be able to run on Earth, but could run on the moon. Now, over the next few years, we'll see the launch of more than a dozen different lunar missions. So what do we currently have? Well, let's start with NASA's Artemis 1. 
Now that, again, we just talked about, it was supposed to be late 2020. It's probably going to be 2021, mid-21. Uh, Artemis 1, as we know, is going to be testing on two fronts. It's going to first be the inaugural flight of the Space Launch System, and secondly, the first real deep space test of the Orion crew capsule, which so far is going to spend six days in lunar orbit, that might change. While it's totally crewless, a number of low-cost experiments are also going to be going up on Artemis 1, and many are going to study the lunar environment, like measuring radiation levels or how dust behaves during landing sequences. But probably the most exciting, however, is going to be the attempt to pinpoint locations of exposed water ice on the surface. Then we've got China with the Chang-5, and 6, which is going to launch late 2020 and 2023. Now this Chang'e, which it's known as for the Lunar Exploration Program, has been quite good and it doesn't seem to be slowing down. Uh, if successful, the Chang'e 5 will be China's third successful spacecraft landing on the moon. Though it's not going to be a rover, like the previous two Chang'e iterations, this is going to be the country's first sample return mission, bringing back at least 2 kilograms of lunar material from 2 meters below the surface. Now, Chang'e 6 is really just a redux of the same sample return mission, although it will most probably include additional scientific payload to study the lunar soil and atmosphere. Then we've got India with the Chandrayaan-3, which is 2021. This is going to be India's third lunar mission, and it's the second attempt at landing a spacecraft on the moon. Because remember, Chandrayaan-2 crashed, it was a little bit, not that great situation. Then we've got Russia with the Luna 25, 26, and 27. And those are going to be launching in 2021, 2024, and 2025. The last mission under the Luna program was in 1976, when the world still had the Soviet Union. So eager to make sure that it's got its stake in the 21st century moon rush, Russia is resurrecting the program with a slate of new missions focused on enabling future mining operations. So you've got Luna 25 is going to prove out new landing technologies and drill into the surface of the South Pole to study the composition of the moon, kind of the soil and the water ice. Helium-3, which is something that keeps coming up. Then there's carbon and nitrogen and all the precious minerals and any other interesting resources. Luna 26 is going to be an orbiter that's going to survey the landscape from above to try and get a sense where these resources might lie. Again, key, key point here, everybody's interested in resources on the moon. And then you've got Luna 27, which is another lander headed to the South Pole to specifically prospect for water ice. Japan's also going to be doing their SLIM, which is going to be in January 2022. And basically the purpose of this is to demonstrate if the JAXA agency has what it takes to actually land safely on a lunar surface. So this is going to be using a couple of technologies that power, you know, facial recognition, and it's going to go and recognize lunar craters and determine if the location's, you know, okay, can it land here? And if it can, then it can touch down. So kind of interesting. From South Korea, there's going to be the KPLO in July 2022. So you can see these are very close together. Now that's going to be South Korea's first lunar probe, and it's going to work to map out the presence of natural resources on the moon. Again, water, ice, helium-3, precious metals, all of that. 
Then we've got NASA with Viper in 2022. NASA's gonna be planning to use the CLPS initiative to get some sense of what the water ice environment on the moon looks like. But the Viper, the Volatiles Investigating Polar Exploration Rover, is the mission uh, that is gonna explicitly prospect for those resources. After that, we've got in late 2022, Artemis II. The purpose of it is to really test and ensure that the Orion can safely transport humans into deep space and back. The mission's also gonna probably, is gonna take up some small secondary payloads for various science experiments. And then in 2023, which is one year before the 2024 NASA mission, SpaceX is gonna do the Dear Moon Project. So as we remember back in 2017, Japanese billionaire Yusaka Mozawa made a deal with SpaceX to go on a trip around the moon and back home. Now, that was supposed to go on the Crew Dragon spacecraft, but then plans changed. Uh, it became, you know, the Falcon Heavy rocket's activities shrank and Starship development took the prominence. Now, Mezawa and six to eight other artists of his choosing are gonna get to take that trip around the moon. I would say it's gonna be probably the biggest historical event of the century for humans to first become an interplanetary species. And for him to take artists with him, that's just sealing it in the history books for future generations. Well, it looks like that's all we have time for today, but remember you can always listen back to these whenever you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer on SoundCloud. This show's broadcast through X-Ray 91.1 FM and KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and listen live. Remember, all of what we just covered is happening right now. This isn't science fiction anymore, it's actually reality, especially going into the 2020s and beyond. 